Hey, this is Noah Averback Katz, aka Rin on Star Trek Discovery, and you are listening to Spoiler Country. It's time to enter the spoilerverse via our secret portal of the exclusive Arctic Club in beautiful downtown Seattle with our hosts, John and Kenrick and Jeff. Welcome to Spoiler Country. Hey, if you're listening to our show for the first time and you're on one of the social medias that we're on, like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, any of those kinds of things, you should always check us out on spoilerverse.com. But if you want to keep up with our latest episodes, you should bring out your smartphone, get into your favorite podcatcher, find Spoiler Country, and hit subscribe. Then you'll get all our new stuff. And if you want to reach out to us, you can do that in two ways. You can call us and leave us a voicemail at 707-656-2080. Again, 707-656-2080. Or you can shoot us an email at spoilercountry at gmail.com. Citizens in the Great Cave of the Spoilerverse, welcome back to Spoiler Country. I'm Ken Cregan. That, that right there is the irreversible Johnny Horsley. And today on the show, well, it's Noah Averbach Katz, isn't it? It is. He plays Ren on Star Trek Discovery. And uh, we're doing the thing right now where Jeff is getting us a bunch of Star Trek actors, which I think is great. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. It's like our third or fourth one, and we've got more lined up too. And it's just, it's awesome. And I know you've watched Discovery, but if you if you mm-hmm. haven't watched Discovery out there, you need to. It's an amazing show. It's really good. It's it's worth the price of admission of having CBS access. It's yeah. It, it's it. Plus, you, you get even if you don't like Star Trek, it's so good. Plus, you get Picard. You get Lower Deck. Oh yeah. Have you watched yeah. Lower Deck? Not yet, but oh, I've watched God, Picard. It's and Picard's so ridiculous! Too. It's awesome. Yeah, I've heard it's funny. I want to watch it. It's on my to watch list. But uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Discovery's well, so good. Shoot, man. Let's find out more about Discovery and listen to Noah in his own words. Hello, listeners of Spoiler Country. Today on the show, we had the fantastic Noah Averbach Katz. How's it going, sir? It's going well. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. You know, it, it's actually, it's a great thrill for me to have you on the show because I really do love uh, Star Trek Discovery and season three has been, I think, the best season they've had so far. And your role was actually so much fun. My, my, my wife was so sad with your fate. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, you know, she she joins, you know, everyone who is who is sad with Rin's fate. That's she's not alone in that. Well, the one thing I, I said to my wife to try to, to, to um, calm her down a little bit, I said, you know, he's under quite a bit of makeup right there. I'm sure the actor will come back as multiple <laughs> characters for season four. And without spoiling too, too much, is there any particular chance that you may wear a lot of makeup and be a different character in season four? Uh, probably not in season four, you know, because of COVID, it's been a, a really difficult shooting season. So there's nothing on the books for me for season four, but, you know, Star Trek is long and, you know, it's okay to have a little break, you know, so, so who knows, who knows? And anything could happen. Yeah. And I mean, I was also trying to rack my brains that is there any way that your character did not die even though we saw him <laughs> obliterated? I was like, you know, no, no, sure. there's no way. I don't, I, you know, I'd love to give people false hope and be like, I've seen people say, oh, you know, maybe they transported him at the last second, but no, he's dead. He's dead as a doorknob. He's dust floating on the bridge of discovery that is going up Saru's nose. So, you know, there's, there's <laughs> no way. Yeah. Michael's going to brush me off her shoulder at some point when I, as part of my blue particles, you know, fall on her. Oh, that you, you just crushed the hopes of probably a lot of fans out there are like, son of a bitch. I, you know, I, I, I feel, I feel like I have to do that. You know, I feel like, so, so like so many people were like, oh, is he going to be a crew member? Is maybe he's going to join? And I was just felt so bad because I didn't want people, you know, I wanted people to like him and get attached to the story, but I didn't want them to be, you know, pissed off that he <laughs> got killed. So I, I don't want to, 
give anybody any sort of false hope that that Rin is not dead because he absolutely got blasted. Well, I'm just going to point out that there's probably a whole lot of fan fiction that just has stopped being typed just as we <laughs> spoke said those words. We're like son of a bitch. <laughs> but you know, you know, there's a lot of 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 history that we don't see. So you know, you can write any sort of biography that you would like for him, and and I think that is still very valid. And he could have a, an identical twin, uh, Drin. <laughs> Drin would be a fantastic Drin. character played by you. I think maybe even quadruplets, Drin, Bryn, Glynn, and Min. <laughs> I'm telling you, that would, that would be perfect. You you need to uh, pitch that to the Discovery writers right now. Yeah, I'm sure they'd love that right now as they're, you know, just trying to scramble to make sure everybody gets their COVID test. Let's see if I can get them on a Zoom and pitch, you know, some sitcom where it's just a bunch <laughs> of me talking to myself. Well, well, they do have uh, Lower Decks now, the cartoon. So, I mean, there's room. That's true. That's a good point. <laughs> well, the, one of the cool things I, I read about you is that you're actually a second generation Trekkie. Is that correct? This is definitely true. Yes, I, I am very much a second generation. My mom was the first generation. She's the one who really um, decided for me that I was going to be a Trekkie. It wasn't much of a choice. So I grew up, you know, watching Voyager, watching Enterprise, going to conventions and yeah, you know, it's 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 definitely been my birthright. So I'm guessing your mother is the original series uh, starter. <coughs> yeah, you know, she was would watch the original series reruns and then was big into Next Generation. She's a therapist, so sort of having Troy there was this mm. kind of revelation for her. You know, I think she really saw herself in the sort of next gen ethos and and kind of camaraderie there so you know she's she has has stayed with it throughout but I, I, yeah that's definitely kind of where she really locked in on it which trek then is yours i would say my trek is enterprise that was really mm. the first one i grew up watching week to week the one that sort of you know that changed me from you know something that i was watching with my mom to something that i was watching with my friends mm. I, I will say my my star trek is deep space nine yeah the, you know it's it, funny actually deep space nine is the one that i sort of missed growing up and have gotten to revisit i, I just sort of you know the the next gen reruns would be on and then by the time I was sort of of, you know, real TV watching age, Deep Space Nine was sort of coming to a close and it was sort of later in Voyager moving into Enterprise. So I am sort of lucky where I get to go back and uh, see a lot or have seen a lot of uh, Deep Space Nine for the first time. It's It's been awesome. It, it, it aged extremely well. Yeah, I agree. And I, I also think, you know, some of my favorite supporting casts are in there obviously mm. jeffrey combs sort of you know is, oh, is yeah. in there you know he's he'll always be shran to me but of course he's amazing as wayun and, and his other characters there but between you know armin shimmerman as quark and garrick you know some of just the the my favorite sort of non-essential crew members are 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 in that show and and I would definitely would say I felt like D Space Nine was made maybe almost fifteen years too early. Like it was like built for streaming, you know. I mean, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I think it it sort of it's it's interesting. You know, it it really is also trying to tackle some pretty interesting things, maybe a little bit ahead of its time. And yeah. And I, I, I think that's really, you know, Discovery is sort of picking off, picking up where DS9 sort of was limited by, you know, the the cultural, you know, pressures of the time. It, it did feel like it, it was trying to touch on multiple things, um, including uh, race, some really complicated concepts about war mm. that Star Trek, I feel kind of was hesitant to do before that show came on. Mm -hmm. And what it kind of made me realize was that in making Star Trek Discovery it's one of the few shows that is it feels like it's made not only for the moment but it, it needs to be kind of be made with the future in mind as well not just because you know the mm -hmm. idea of time travel but unlike just like unlike other shows because it's Star Trek it has to realize people are going to be tuning back in 10, 20, 30 years from now yeah. potentially that's interesting yeah you know Star Trek Discovery it's a really interesting thing because the 
inception of it, you know, the sort of creation of it was all done during the Obama era. You know, the whole first season was was essentially like written and produced during the final days of the Obama era and then sort of aired at the beginning of, you know, the 2016 Trump era. Mm. And and it's been difficult to sort of, you know, catch up to that because things change so quickly. The sort of political climate changed so quickly that I, I think it's really only now in season three that they're really able to, you know, confront it in a in a in a substantial way because everyone is still trying to figure out what the hell was going on for so long. And I think they've done a really beautiful job of that. And yeah, you know, it's it's just it's an it's an interesting challenge, especially now, you know, the other thing is is in, you know, the nineties and the early aughts, you sort of had these you know, what is what I think people think of as like classic Star Trek, which are these sort of morality tales. Mm, and mm. I love that. And everybody loves that. But I also think, you know, in 2021, like there isn't a lot of room for morality tales because so often like it's 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 either right or it's wrong. You know, mm. there's so little nuance to like, you know, should gay people exist? You know what I right, mean? Like right, right. there's no new, there's no question anymore about these things. You know, it, there's no question of, of re- whether they're right or wrong, you know, is fascism bad? Yes. You know what I mean? Right, right. And so it's sort of like discoveries having to find a new approach because, you know, the questions that we're getting asked in 1995 just aren't relevant anymore. And the questions that need to be getting asked are almost a bit too big for a, you know, hour long morality, you know? So I, 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 I think that's what discovery is moving into and hopefully what they'll continue to kind of explore as well. Yeah. And I, and I, I think what's going to keep discovery alive is that it does feel, and I don't want to sound, I don't mean this to sound negative against the older Star Trek, which I did love. It feels more like a mature version of Star Trek. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and I, and I don't think, you know, one, I don't think they're in opposition to each other. I, I you know, I, I think so often because it's new, people want to compare it to the old thing. Yeah. And I think it's, it's quite the opposite is that it's in conversation. It's building on what's come before, you know, it's not saying this is what Star Trek is now. It's more saying, you know, in 2001, when Star Trek was on UPN or in 2005, you know, Star Trek, was going to look like enterprise and now in 2021 or 2020 you know this is what star trek has to look like it for in order for it to be relevant and for in order for it to thrive and survive so it's 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 not in in opposition with previous star trek especially because you know people who are making the show really love this old star trek they really care about it and they care about you know what's come before and, and honoring that and, and having that be important. And it, it's, it's, it's more about moving it into the current day in a way that, you know, 24 episodes of a TV show just doesn't happen. You know, right. like it just can't, it could not happen. It takes almost a year to make 13 episodes. You know, the production quality is so high and the budgets are so high that it's just a completely different uh, world now. And and that's why I think, I, or I, I take a lot of issue with those who would call themselves the purists or, the, or, or who pretty much are gatekeepers, mm-hmm. is that Discovery can cannot exist, as you said, the way the original shows existed. And I think it, but it does develop upon the ideas just as well. And I think because it is different in the way that it is different, it brings in a newer audience that may have been lost to Star Trek if that show had not appeared. Yeah, I think that's such a great point. You know, especially early on, you know, if you don't like Discovery, like that's okay. You know, obviously the writers want you to like it. The actors want you to like it. But if you don't like it, that's okay. And, you know, all those, you know, 700 episodes of previous generations of Star Trek are still there. 
and they're untainted and they are yours and you get to have whatever relationship you want with them. You know, the reality is, is that, you know, television is very, very different than it was 20, 25, 30 years ago. And in order to get this show made, this show has to kind of meet the demands of the time. And it also, you know, I, I personally think the the writers and creators have done an amazing job sort of, you know, reaching out to older friends and, and you know, with just like the small things of, of naming the ship after Nog and after yeah. Yelchin and all that stuff. I just think there's like these amazing little nods to say, you know, we are trying to create a show for you. We're not trying to put our stamp on it. We're not trying to sort of wrest it from your grasp. You know, we're trying to create a show for you, but we're also trying to create a show so that in 30 years, there will still be Star Trek conventions because yep. there will be new fans excited about the shows we're, that we've made, you know? So I, I think, you know, as much as so many other properties, like I, I think Star Trek is doing a really good job of you know, trying to include the current fan base, knowing that the current fan base is the reason why there is a new show, mm. you know, but also realizing that if they make no attempt to open the show up to a, a, a much wider audience, not only will the audience not exist for this, you know, 15, 10 years down the road, but also the, the powers that be won't put money into it. And it will just cease to exist. And and I and I think that's important because Discovery has come out at the at a moment of relatively silent Star Trek as, mm -hmm. as a franchise. I mean, the movies had just stopped with yes. um, Star Trek Beyond. The other there was no other type of TV show that was coming out to network TV at that time. And because of Discovery is doing well, there is now talk. You have Picard came out, which was brilliant. There's talk about strange, uh, strange new worlds, and mm -hmm. you have all these other spinoffs. And I think there's even some minor discussion of Cisco getting another um, spinoff. There's rumors about that. I mean, none of this would be even discussed if Discovery didn't didn't hit the audience the way it hit. That's 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 absolutely true. Yeah, you know, I think like Discovery really has been the launching pad for you know basically every new show that has come out so far. And for, and, I, and I would say, again, to the purists, would, would be even if Discovery isn't necessarily your Star Trek, you, we're gonna, you're going to end up owing Discovery for the Star Treks that come later that may be closer to yeah. what you're looking for. That's, that's definitely true. And you know what? If you don't like it, it's okay. Like, you can still watch your other shows. Exactly. It's still there. Now, the interesting thing that as you grew up with Star Trek, did your, and you matured, did your understanding of what Star Trek is change and evolve as you got older? Hmm. You know, that's a good question. I, I don't know. You know, it's always sort of has meant this sort of, I think for so many people, it's been sort of this place of comfort and safety and a way to kind of connect with friends and families and stuff and stuff like that. I think, you know, the one thing that I have seen are the places where Star Trek, like, really is behind the time or not behind the times, but where it is such a product of its time, like mm. going back and watching, you know, original series episodes or especially early next gen episodes, you can just see how, you know, you can see how they are reflected of, of the early of the late sixties or of the, you know, early nineties or late eighties. And I think it's important to, and and also even with Enterprise, you can see how that is like such a show of like, you know, 2005 or 2008 mm. or whatever. And you can, I, I just makes me really appreciative of how, you know, Discovery and new shows have sort of picked up the torch and are trying to kind of push the conversation forward. Because I think a lot of properties that sort of have this history of, you know, being progressive or kind of having a first, you know, sort of like the first interracial kiss. Mm. I think a lot about actually Major League Baseball with Jackie Robinson. You yeah. know, they sort of pat themselves on the back every year and everybody wears 42. And <laughs> obviously, like, you know, he's an incredible human being. Right, right. You know, the, the Major League Baseball does so little to 
actually support and invite black players and black fans. You know, right. it's just sort of a self-congratulatory moment every year. And I think Star Trek has the ability to fall into that trap and say, look how progressive we are. Look how ahead of the times we were in 1968. Mm. You know, look how, look at what we were doing in the early nineties that nobody else was doing. And all that is true and all that's amazing, but it only counts if you keep pushing the conversation forward. Mm. If you keep staying ahead of the curve on new shows, on, on new ideas, on new approaches. So I, I think I think as I sort of see it in a larger context, which I wasn't able to do when I was younger, it makes me sort of see Star Trek as something that continues to like need to grow and expand as opposed to something that like is static and perfect and is, you know, a perfect utopia 24-7. And, and I appreciate that. Now, I mean, Star Trek at its very best is when it focuses on the idea of allegory of, of it being an allegory, when you were younger, did, did, did you recognize those allegories that, that were happening or was that something as an adult, you look back on and said, ah, that's what they were hitting on right there. Yeah, You know, I think that, I think that it, well, one of the reasons so many people are Star Trek fans in their adults is because the allegories are very much available to kids, you know, available to younger people. It's not, you know, they're not always really, really complex allegories for better and for worse. And sometimes they are, but I also think, you know, sometimes when Star Trek is at its best, it isn't always an allegory. When I think about those episodes like Inner Light or about The Offspring or even about Measure of a Man, you know, they're not really allegories. They're either just you know, they're they're actually like kind of these sweeping emotional experiences, you know? Mm. And those are sort of the episodes that have really stuck with me, you know, about what Star Trek can do, which is kind of bring you on an emotional journey that can substitute for another as opposed to like, you know, a kind of straight allegory, which is, you know, you have black on one side and white on the other side mm. in inner light, you sort of have the journey of a life and you get to kind of see that and see what's important, you know, what's important as you go through your life or in the offspring, you kind of see, you know, what it is to, deal with loss and how people deal with it and and childhood and loss in a different way and even in measure of a man you know it's about arguing for someone's right to exist you know which which is just feels so relevant to me and which again you know you can obviously expand out to our world but it isn't you know this thing is 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 inherently standing in for someone else in a way that they don't even sort of allude to you know they allude to these things within within the episodes and so i just think as much as they are about you know allegory and stuff it, it is also about emotional experiences you know experiencing what it means to argue for a person's right to exist, experiencing what it is to, you know, make decisions over a lifetime and what is really important at the end of the day, experiencing how different people deal with loss and, and, and things like that. I, I feel like those are kind of the things which which really stick with me personally. And and I, I do think that's a, one of the great benefits of having a 24 episode season, I think, is that they can slow down a little bit and breathe a little bit mm -hmm. and breathe. I do. Th um, I, I love Discovery. I do think because of the time frame, it doesn't get a chance to breathe as much, maybe. Yeah, I, I do think that's true. And I also think, you know, I think especially in these three years, you know, the first year, the first year was kind of just like trying to, you know, it's first season of a show. Second year, you sort of are both, you know, having the season, but you're also setting up Strange New Worlds. And even this year, you do have to spend some time sort of setting up Section 31 with Michelle Yeoh. So I'm hoping as there's less of a pressure on Discovery to, you know, essentially kind of like ice, ice 
break forward, you know, sort of breaking ground on on new shows that can kind of come in their wake that they will kind of allow themselves or have the ability to uh, breathe a little bit more. Yeah, I, I think so, too. I mean, obviously, the third season, you do also have to explore the 32nd century, which I mean, there's there's a lot to mm-hmm. orient the viewer to. And I think Discovery, I mean, I think Discovery is a brilliant show and I will, and I credit Discovery very strongly for bringing me back to the fold of Star Trek. Mm-hmm. I was very wayward from Star Trek for a lot of years and in, other than the movies. Mm-hmm. And I think the show brought me back to going back and rewatching Deep Space Nine, Next Generation, mm-hmm. original series. I th- like I said, I think it's brilliant. So I don't take anything away from it. But like I said, because it is shorter, you don't have those quieter episodes that are more philosophical. Yeah, um, in that sense, that's definitely true. I, I think that's that's uh, that's a, a, a a true critique. Now, now, would you do you credit Star Trek with the reason why you wanted to get into acting? You know, it's funny. I really don't. I I never really thought of Star Trek as like an acting thing that I could do. It it always seemed as I don't know. You know, I never really thought of it as actors creating something it just seemed like a fully formed world yeah you know and and also like a lot of the time when I was sort of in undergrad or in graduate acting school it was sort of in the lull where the only thing that was around with the movies which is sort of such a different thing than the tv shows so it just sort of never really crossed my mind until Mary got on the show and suddenly it was happening. And even then it took me a while to sort of like conceptualize that like actors and writers were making this thing and it didn't actually mm. just exist in the future. <laughs> so you ended up attending the Juilliard school, a uh, drama division, which, which yes. is like the school for acting. At least for, for me, <laughs> I mean, it's just, I mean, I, I'm not, I'm obviously I've never been into acting. I don't know a lot about the schooling, but Juilliard, I know, I know uh-huh. the name. It, it, it's so high profile that even someone who's nowhere near the, the realm of acting knows the school. What was it like to be there as a student? I mean, what, what was the, the process like? What was it that you uh, learned about the, the acting that maybe you wouldn't have learned without Juilliard? Well, it, it was interesting. You know, I think my highlights were getting to meet Mary Wiseman there. That was sort of the my number one takeaway from Juilliard <laughs> was meeting my wife there. And good we answer. Were also, yeah, we were, <laughs> it's a true, definitely good and true answer. You know, we were also there with Mary Chifo as well, which was which has been really fun. You know, all getting to kind of share this Star Trek journey together. We were all in the same class. You know, Juilliard was an interesting place. I'm still sort of synthesizing my experience there. I think some days were awesome and some days I'm very, very happy to not be there anymore. (laughs) I think, you know, it's a place, it's an incubator where you got to do some amazing things, but I also think it's a place that is trapped in the past a little bit. And because of the name, it is a bit of a perpetual motion machine where, you know, people want to go there who are good at acting and then a bunch of industry people can see them and and almost it almost sort of is just this straight line for people you know who are commercially viable but i do think that there are a lot of gaps in terms in terms of uh, a lot of stuff which i was there you know which people weren't really thinking about in 2011 to 2015 that people are thinking a lot more about you know post 2016 so i i haven't been there in a long time so maybe those things might have changed, but it's it's an interesting place. And I was very, very privileged and lucky to go there. And I'm glad I'm not there anymore. <laughs> well, I mean, your career, I mean, you've done um, a lot of Shakespeare. You've done Romeo and Juliet. You played in Othello. You played in King, in King Lear. I'm a high school English teacher for my day job. I teach as a therapeutic school, but I teach Shakespeare, obviously, every year to my students. As someone who's done a lot of Shakespeare... How would you, what would you tell students about Shakespeare, about how to handle the, approach the language and how would you sell it to students, do you think? That's interesting. You know, you know, that's so interesting. It depends on the group of students because I think some students, you know, when you put Shakespeare in front of them, they're sort of just ready to like dive into a world of history and the way that history is actually like not different at all from our modern times. And it sort of like connects you to humanity in a way that, you know, people 
you know, in the 15, 1600s were just thinking about their girlfriends or thinking about not being able to fall asleep or thinking about, you know, what the hell the person in charge of the country is doing and do I need to like remove them? So in that sense, I think that, that the sort of way in is like, you know, with King Lear, it's like, has anybody had a crazy dad, you know, (laughs) (laughs) and like who just doesn't like do what you want and won't get you the Christmas present you want. And also some of your siblings are assholes as well. (laughs) You know, it's, there's a, there's a relevance, but I also think, you know, there's also a group of, of, of people who where it's like, you know what, I, I think especially right now, it's like, there are more relevant immediate things than Shakespeare. And those are worthy of exploration in a way that for a long time, sort of the classicism of art sort of would obscure them or push them aside. And I I think that that is valid as well. You know, I think mm. that there is more room for validity. And I also think so long sort of Shakespeare has been, you know, held on to by sort of racial structures and patriarchal structures, which mm. I'm, I'm very happy to see being re-examined and questioned. And, and I think, you know, being able to approach Shakespeare without the sort of pressure of, you know, here's what I think it is, you know, here's what I, a, a person who's been uh, studying this forever is going to tell you what it is. I think seeing those things being stripped away makes me very, very happy. Yeah, and I'm going to point out first. I'm going to apologize to my father for laughing so lo- so loudly when you said a crazy crazy dad. I'm not counting him as one of them. <laughs> he will listen to the episode when it comes out. <laughs> yeah, if you call your dad Lear, then there might be some issues going on. Indeed, com- completely. And I mean, and I guess you would probably would agree that one of the issues of Shakespeare in school is that Shakespeare it really is not meant to be read. It, it really isn't. It's meant to be performed, meant to be spoken. I don't think it's really meant to be read. Yeah, you know, especially if you're not like hyper familiar with it and you're not already obsessed with it. You know, I think at some point when you're so become sort of so obsessed with it that you're just like so interested in, in it that it's okay to read it. But I think for students, reading it sort of doesn't do much for you. And even just like getting up and acting it in front of your English class, it's it's difficult to kind of get people excited as well. So yeah, you know, it's, it's a lot about is getting into like, unless you're really like breaking down, you know, Hey, like this word actually means boner, you yeah. <laughs> know, or this sweet word means like, you know, this, this sort of amalgamation of sentences means like, I hate you so much that I'm going to, you know, gouge your eyes out and slit your throat and everything. Yeah. It can be difficult to get sort of students on board, but, but once you can get sort of past that, I think it's, it can be really fun to just feel like, you know, these feelings that the people are experiencing, you know, and, and not just like, not just sort of like teenage emotions, but like, you know, emotions of like, what is the point of my life? Or, you know, I can't sleep because I'm racked with guilt. I think that there is a lot of points of connection. And when you feel that point of connection, some things that maybe you've been feeling, it makes you feel not as alone because you realize, oh, you know, I'm definitely not the only person who's gone through this. Yeah. And I, and I will say, I do think one thing I do like about Shakespeare, it does give you a a real sense that these feelings and pe- that have, have that you feel now have been felt for hundreds and hundreds of years that people are in many ways similar and you know and it is a universal thing and i and i do enjoy that aspect of it i think quite a bit absolutely and you know the, the you know strange ways like the 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 shakespearean world is i mean obviously it's hugely different from our own but it's also not that different you know it was sort of this sort of semi-totalitarian state that was constantly listening to people and Mm. interested in what they were doing and tracking what they were doing. And there's just, there's some very interesting and distressing, but also just fascinating similarities between our life and the life of Shakespeare and his contemporaries. And and I agree with you completely. Like like I said, I, one of, 
it's kind of funny. Like one of my least favorite plays of Shakespeare is Romeo and Juliet, but my favorite play to teach is Romeo and Juliet. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I, and I have more than once had a, um, a one man sword fight with the uh, Tybalt, <laughs> Romeo and Mercutio scene in front of my class more than once. And it, 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 it is a fun scene, especially because it is so funny looking at some aspects of it 400 years mm-hmm. later. Cause you know, like, you know, the whole play takes place in like five days. It is pretty funny for our kids, but at the same time, there's something to be said about the layers in it. You know, one of my favorite plays is Love Labor's Lost because I do think once the sort of, it, I feel like there's a seriousness with which you feel like you must approach Shakespeare. You know, mm. everything, you must understand it. You must do it the way in which it is supposed to be done. And it must mean this thing. You know, you must feel this way when you approach it. And Love Labor's Lost is sort of this bizarro play that a lot of the jokes don't make sense. And there's like always footnotes where it's like scholars have no idea what this joke was supposed to mean. And perhaps (laughs) that is the joke, you know, and it reminds me of Star Trek Enterprise in the sense where it's like it's disarming, you know, (laughs) you can't approach it with like the sort of you can't approach it with the same serious seriousness, you know, with, with your sort of, with the, the sort of, you know, like this is serious art because it doesn't always work. And it's about like crappy wordplay <laughs> and how crappy wordplay actually like means nothing in the scope of life and death. And, you know, it sort of ends, it's supposed to end with a marriage, but instead it ends with a sequel that is lost to time maybe. And it, it just, I just really appreciate when things that are taken really, really seriously, seriously, like, you know, you know, Star Trek has to be so serious, you Mm. know, it it, it has to be a moral identity thing when you can remind yourself or, you know, or King Lear is the most serious play or serious work of art that has ever been made. When you can remind yourself that actually like, it's not always that serious and it's also not always up to the people at the top to tell you what to think about it. You mm. know, when you have an, an episode of star Trek where, you know, trip gets pregnant against his sort of wishes or when Vulcans introduced Velcro to, you know, the United States, it yeah, just yeah. it puts things in perspective in a way that I really appreciate. And in a way that sort of takes it out of the hands of, you know, the, the higher powers sort of disseminating what you should think about this piece of art and, and kind of lets you decide for yourself. And yeah, I mean, people forget Star Trek is meant to be fun and people who I think just take it so seriously kind of forget the episode Spock's brain. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm, I mean, mm-hmm. It's like, it, it is fun. I mean, one of the best Star Trek movies of all time is Star Trek four. I mean, it's Absolutely. just so much fun and it's not, it's fun because it's not taking yourself seriously. I mean, the scenes with, um, check off with the, on the naval vessel are hilarious yeah. because I mean, they're kind of stupid, but they're hilarious. And I, I think that was almost a way of saying, you know, just relax, have fun with these <laughs> works. Stop being such a dick about it. And it is fun, you know? And I think ultimately like what makes it fun is that it is fun. You know, it's fun to sort of laugh at ourselves through you know, these, these other lenses and, and say in in the same way as Shakespeare, it's like, oh man, like I really see myself as this, this person and boy, am I embarrassed by myself, but I'm also laughing along with these people as well. Yeah. And I agree agree with you um, a hundred percent on that. So after you did a lot of theater and you eventually moved into, you did a bread factor, which is a a film. Was there a a major transition how you acted when you did went from film i mean theater to film and tv yeah you know i'm still learning you know i i sort of look to other more seasoned actors you know on that film like tyne daly or janine garofalo i was sort of looking for them to them as like how do you know what's the difference here you know how does the camera pick you up differently or read things differently And, and even when I got to Discovery, you know, I was really trying to figure out both how to act, you know, in this style, this sort of, you know, sci-fi style, which I understood, you know, the genre as a whole, but, you know, just as the actor, you know, how do I do this? And also how do I do this 
in this prosthetics. And, you know, I was, I really looked to David Ajala cause he's such a talented actor. He's such a great film actor. So I was really just trying to soak up and I mean, basically steal everything that he did and just see if it worked when I did it. And it was really, really helpful as a place to kind of start and play from, from, and, you know, on top of that, he's such a, generous actor when it comes to trying new things when it comes to playing you know opposite of each other and playing off of each other and also when it comes to you know throwing a new idea into your court and seeing how you deal with it it was just a lot of fun to get to work with him and also just kind of great as an actor to get to you know steal from him because he's so talented and so in in discovery he he's the one who plays book and you obviously played ren the endorian in the episode where you first appear, was that meant to be just a, a one-off episode for your character? Or did you know ahead of time that he was going to come back uh, multiple times? No, I don't think it was meant to be a one-off that one time because the episode did end with, you know, Rin on Discovery alive. And I was like, you know, I, I think he's coming back because if they didn't want that to be the case, I would be somewhere else doing something else or I wouldn't be alive, you know? Mm. So I, I didn't know Rin's kind of full arc. I did have the sense very early on that he would die eventually, you know? Mm. I think just from knowing Star Trek as well as I do and also seeing the way that he sort of fit into the overarching story, it just seemed like that was an inevitability and and I was sort of prepared for that. But I also didn't like really reach out to the writers or showrunners to say, hey, can you tell me his overall story? Because first off, he didn't seem like he had any big secret. You know, there wasn't there wasn't something that he was going to reveal later that would sort of color the way I might approach him as an actor earlier on. So it felt right to me to both play him moment to moment as an actor because he's sort of you know, in the moment that he's in, there's not something else on his mind, you know, some some dark secret which he's hanging on to, which is, you know, dictating how he's acting. But also I knew as a Star Trek fan, if they were to tell me, which they eventually did very nicely, but like if I knew too early, hey, you know, he's going to die, here's how he dies, I would sort of get so caught up on at that as a fan that it would probably make my acting worse so i decided you know <laughs> i'll find out when i find out i'll get there yeah. when i get there and that way i can just focus on right to, uh, of what's right ahead of me and not be too bummed out about you know having to think about oh is he gonna die how is he gonna die here it's coming oh is it here now no you know <laughs> so i just was was about focusing on what was right ahead of me yeah and star trek fans are so i don't know the right word of being obsessed but are so attention driven to the different alien races of mm -hmm. Star Trek that keep appearing and Endorians have been around since the original series. And was there any aspects of Endorians that you either had to research or you had to perform a certain way to, for expectations of Endorians? Yeah. You know, that's, it's an interesting question because specifically for Andorians, you know, they've been around forever. They're so sort of like Star Trek iconic and alien iconic. Like you see them and you just sort of know right away that, oh, that's got to be Star Trek. But there was so, there's so little canon on them, you hmm. know, and that's a kind of a really exciting opportunity to get to participate in the creation of canon. But in terms of the research that I did to, it was basically just watching everything Jeffrey Combs did because he is sort of, as far as I'm concerned, he sort of like created what it means to be Andorian, you know, mm. what is expected of an Andorian. And it was a difficult task sort mm. of incorporating this sort of brash you know, in your face, sort of confident uh, swagger of an Andorian that Jeffrey Combs came up with, with this character who had sort of been beaten down, who had almost lost everything, who was trying to pick back the pieces again. And so I really was, you know, worried about whether or not he would come off as Andorian. But I think what I sort of settled on in terms of incorporating what Jeffrey Combs had created and, and the idea of what an Andorian was, it was somebody who was searching for his Andorianness again, you know, trying to work back up to that confident, 
you know, sort of swagger that he had lost when you meet him. And so that's sort of how I wound up sort of approaching and, and attempting to incorporate a sort of Andorianness in with my performance. Did, did you find yourself kind of like making up an Andorian background for yourself or as far as like culturally or whatever on your own? You know, it was less of an Andorian background and more of an Emerald Train background, you gotcha. know, because he, he even we don't really know what Andoria, the planet, is up to right now. Mm. But we definitely know what the Emerald Chain is up to and who they are. And, you know, I it seems like Rin had spent a lot of time in the chain and knew it very, very well, whether he was born into it or joined it at some point or whether, you know, both Orion and Andoria, every planet just sort of feeds into it. It's not a hundred percent clear, but it was very clear that, you know, he was sort of crafted or molded in the chain and that he saw a lot of things he didn't like and attempted to change it. So it was more about sort of creating a backstory of, you know, his relationship with this sort of mob government entity and with its sort of strong-armed ruler in Osira and you know in a way you know in, in his in his death scene it was sort of like probably him and Zara are the people who knew Osira best you know and so knowing what she's capable of you know, gives me a different impression of what might happen. You know, when she's holding that gun to my face, I think Rin is pretty much, you know, understood that he's going to get killed, even though Book is there and trying to, to negotiate. You know, I think, you know, Rin really understands just how volatile and dangerous this person is. And I think th- I think he appears in, is it four episodes? Am I correct on that? Three, just three. 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 I do feel like even in those three episodes, he did have a very interesting heroic arc, I think. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with that. And I feel really lucky to have gotten to kind of to, to, to craft and, and ride that arc. You know, it's sort of this guy who it sort of feels like a redemption story for him. You know, he, he gets to even though he doesn't survive, he gets to stand up to this bully and look them in the face and tell them that they're, you know, that they're nothing, that they're just a bully. They're not, you know, anything more than that. And that there is a better way of doing things and that he's seen it. And, you know, that this bully's ultimately going to fall because of who they are. And I just think that's really, it was a really, really cool and also very Star Trek arc to get to participate Mm. in. Now, you said you didn't know what the arc was going to be for your character when you began playing the uh, Rin. Mm-hmm. Were there any decisions acting-wise that if you had known where you were going to end up that you would have played differently at the beginning? No, I don't think so because, you know, the if 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 Rin sort of had this secret, you know, like, oh, he's actually working for the chain, you know, then it'd be this thing where it's like, oh, I wish I would have approached this thing maybe a little bit differently. But because he was just sort of in the moment trying to, you know, survive and also trying to sort of reclaim himself. I, 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 I sort of felt like just taking it moment to moment served, served him really, really well. Yeah. Well, I'm going to ask this question. I know we, we, we asked it, we discussed it before we, uh, we started really recording. I'm going to ask it again for, for the listeners, but <laughs> you know, for, for, for which I'm asking about the fate of rain and your, and your role in discovery just going forward. You said you're under a lot of makeup as the Endorian Rin. Is there any potential chance of you showing up in the future as, and I guess like you mentioned, Jeffrey Coombs, how different many characters he plays in Star Trek. Are we going to see more of you? You know, at the moment, no. You know, uh, season four has been been a very, very challenging shoot. So, you know, there's not a lot of room to bring too much stuff in. But I, I, I am hopeful and, you know, have my fingers crossed that maybe at some point in the future, I'll be back. So I, I imagine you're not, you know, on set at any moment, like hanging in the background, like, hey, writers, would this be a really yeah. good moment to have an extra alien who is maybe an Endorian or something? Yeah, definitely not <laughs> this year. There's nobody extra on set this year. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this year, I'm just at home. It is, is um, I don't, well, you probably had some idea of it, but because of, like I said, because of COVID, mm-hmm. is the cast being made intentionally smaller on the show or are they using less actors? 
because of COVID? You know, I'm not totally sure. I, I definitely think there's just like a lot of travel decisions. There's just a lot of different decisions that are getting made because of COVID. Yeah, it's just, it's just, there's just a lot going on this year. You know, it's just, it's really, it's just a really, really intense year, you know? So the sort of, there's not a lot of extra room for thought for like, oh, wouldn't this thing be fun if we did that? It's like, we really are just, you know, just trying to make this thing happen and make sure people are safe. So that that's sort of where the, the, the main focus of the creators is right now. Well, like I said, I, I mean, I really love Star, Star Trek Discovery season three. I think going to the future was an ingenious step for them to take. For, for a lot of different reasons, not just because of continuity issues with the other Star Treks, but I think it opened a lot of doors to make this its own show. And like I said, I, and I think you as Ren was fen- absolutely phenomenal. I actually heard something else about you that you're actually a huge Dungeon and Dragon fan. That true? Yeah, yeah, this is definitely true. Yes, massive, massively into Dungeons and Dragons at the moment. So w- when did you start falling in love with Dungeons and Dragons? Uh, a, f- a, f- a friend introduced me to the game maybe like three or four years ago. And oh, we wow. just, yeah, we just have been just into it and playing together and starting other games uh, ever since. It, it's kind of funny. I'm like, a, I'm, I'm a pretty big nerd. And as anyone who knows me knows I'm a, I'm a you know nerd and geek and all that. And you would seem like Dungeons and Dragons w- would be a game I have, I have always played. But I must say, I'd never played Dungeon and Dragon, though I've thought about it many times. It's never too late. Never too late. How hard of a game is Dungeon Dragons to learn to those of us who I mean... Uh, (laughs) Yeah, you know, there's this there's a learning curve. It really helps if somebody who knows the game can introduce you to it. Yeah. Uh, It's definitely difficult to sort of make sense of the rules and, you know, there's thousands and thousands of rules and character creation without really having some guidance, but I think... You know, if you have somebody who can kind of guide you through it, it's not impossible to kind of say, oh, I just want to do this. Like, how do I do this? And somebody says, well, like, here's how it happens. And you say, okay, I do that. And then suddenly you're playing. How would you sell Dungeon Dragon to someone who has not played the game? Yeah, I'd say, you know, you're sitting around your house during COVID. You're not <laughs> doing anything. You haven't talked to your friends in six weeks. Yeah. Uh, this will give you an opportunity to be on Zoom with your friends and hang out and not just talk about how boring your life is. <laughs> it's, a, it's an easy sell nowadays. Nowadays, it's a very easy sell. Uh, Dungeons and Dragons, then it, you're saying it was made for COVID? I mean, in a way, yes, it's so much more fun when you're in the same room, whatever, but it is a very good thing to just like stay connected with people and see them without just being depressed that you're actually not in person. <laughs> and in, in the game, you're a dungeon master. So for our listeners, what does a dungeon master actually do? Well, I think I like to think of it as you know, the dungeon master is sort of the story guide. They they guide the story, you know, here are your options for how the story might go. Here's what you could encounter during your story. And then the players really, you know, muck around in the story and sort of influence it or, you know, change it on a dime or just experience what the, actually happens in the story. So as the dungeon master, you're, you sort of, you're, the lawyer. So you kind of decide, you know, this rule happens in this way and this rule happens in this way. And you are sort of the overview creator. Well, you know, the players really fill in the minute details of the story that you're creating together. Have you ever um, read Ready Player One? I've never read Ready Player One. I think I watched the movie though. Because like, like my knowledge of kind of like the Dungeon Master come from two places, Stranger Things and the book Ready Player One with the character of Holiday, which kind of feels like he's sort of like the dungeon master of the of I guess his the world that he created. Do you feel like Dungeon um, Dungeons and Dragons are becoming more popular now than it was back in the past? I mean, yeah, it's it's way way more popular with you know Critical Role and all these live streams. It's just like huge right now, and I think it's even going to kind of get bigger. You know, all these movies and TV shows. It's just kind of turning into like a big thing that will go from like, I don't really understand it to like, I've had enough of it. I need to stop hearing about it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and, and the interesting about Dungeon Dragon become more popular is that it feels like everything is going digital with video games and everything else, but Dungeon and Dragons is still hanging on. You know what I'm saying? Well, you know, I, there's video games. Baldur's Gate 3 is out. I, I, I think that I think that in like two years, it will feel like it's it's everywhere. 
<laughs> is that good or bad? Uh, I will. We'll see. I'm hoping it's good, but we will definitely see. I think they're even making a movie again of Dungeons and Dragons. Was it was it a cartoon or am I thinking of something else? There was a cartoon. There was a movie. You know, just everywhere. So one of the things that I've seen a lot online, especially with Anthony Rapp, he talks a lot about the Star Trek Discovery cast D and D. So is that true that you guys play? Was it every week or every month? Yeah, we play um every. We try to play every Sunday. Me and Emily Coots, Mary. Ian Blue and Anthony and now Ken as well, Anthony's fiance. So how did this game come together? I mean, who introduced who? Yeah, I sort of had mentioned it to a couple of people. And then Anthony and Blue were like, hey, Noah, you're doing this. You don't have a choice. And then <laughs> so, so they were already Dungeons and Dragon fans before? I think they were very interested in playing and had done a little bit of like playing previously. So they sort of had the sort of on-ramp and then we sort of all together kind of pushed it to the next level. I mean, it's something so cool about the fact that the actors from Star Trek Discovery are, I guess, on some level kind of nerdy themselves. They definitely are, especially Anthony. (laughs) Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Are they more nerdy than you would think being, you know, the actors on Star Trek? It depends on every, every person is different in their own way. (laughs) <laughs> well, uh, I do want to point out a couple of weeks back, we had one of the Star Trek Discovery people on Patrick Kwok Shun, and he voiced his desire to be on Dungeon and Dragon. Apparently, Listen, he's not in the game. Patrick Patrick dug his own grave and then lied down on it. I asked him <laughs> to join multiple times. He didn't follow any of my instructions. And then he just wrote a character and was like, I'm ready. And I was like, that's that's not how it works. Well, so. Patrick is Patrick is off in his own world and I will <laughs> I will bring him on I will onboard him when when it seems appropriate. Oh my god, I, I heard a, that's a different story than what I heard. <laughs> what did Patrick say? My 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 impression of Patrick, and I'm going to um, paraphrase, but it, it's all documented in the other episode. Uh-huh. Is that Patrick said he wanted to play Dungeons and Dragons, but because he was new, you said no. Until you, he is an absolute liar. Patrick is a full-on <laughs> liar. Oh my god! Now he's really never going to play. Oh no! I don't want to start some uh, feud of because Star Trek he's new. I said no. Oh my god! But my understanding of the conversation is he'd be able to. He, he's a little too new, and you can't. You don't have room to have someone that new right now. Well, no, it's that's that's Patrick editorializing, uh, <laughs> which I really don't appreciate. First off. Yeah. First off, early on, I sent I sent him two times. I said, all right, Patrick, I want you to like fill out all this stuff. There's a lot of stuff you have to do in order to be prepared. And he didn't do it. And then he emailed me was like, I was ready. But in the meantime, I was already trying to kind of bring in Anthony's fiance. So I couldn't sort of bring in two new people at the same time. So I said, you know, I can't bring you in at the moment. The game's a little full right now. If you have, you know, eight people playing, suddenly it's not very fun. And I told him, we'll get back to it in a little bit. But I never said anything about him being too new. Oh, my <laughs> God. So so can, can we put the status of Patrick's future in the game as questionable? You can put Patrick, Patrick's status as the future in the game as Patrick lied officially <laughs> on air to oh my sully my, my good name. <laughs> And, and I'm considering retribution, oh, whether no. it be in the court of law or by, by hand-to-hand combat. Patrick would absolutely kick my ass, by the way. Uh, <laughs> no, I love Patrick. I'm working on it. Oh, my God, Patrick. <laughs> if you just would have answered my emails two months ago, we wouldn't be having this problem. <laughs> so you basically, you had, you had offered the game to him and it was chosen not to follow the rules? I, 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 I will have to dig up all the emails we sent back and forth. And it's just going to be horrible for him. I'm, it's going to be just an absolute, you know, just destruction for Patrick. But if that's the way he wants it, it's fine. Is there anyone who can vouch for either one of you? I have all the emails. We email back and forth. I've got receipts, Patrick. You're in for it now, man. <laughs> yeah, but in, in all seriousness, I love Patrick. He is an amazing dude. I am working. I've, I swear to God, I'm working to get him in the game. It's on the front of my mind, especially because he's called me out on Twitter like four times. So I'm desperately, <laughs> desperately trying to figure out a way that I can get him in here without it sort of not being fun for everyone. 
Well, like, well I did talk to Patrick. Like, he is a, it was really fun to talk to as well. Yeah, like I said, I, 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 we'll, we'll check back in on this. If there's got to be like a hashtag let Patrick play thing going on, where we may have to do it in like a cut back in a few weeks <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and see what's happening. But yeah, I mean, no, he's really cool. And But I, I find it really fascinating that the cast is that tight with one another. Yeah, it's a bunch of really, really good good people we got really lucky everybody got really lucky because they are some really really good dudes now because of being in 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 the show for your few episodes and obviously um not the other two seasons you have an interesting perspective of being both knowing the cast on the set and out of the set are they as tight as people imagine them being since you know with the game everything else are they would you say they're more like the next generation type crew or is there kind of I don't know, like a hierarchy still on uh, on the set. <laughs> no, it's an amazing cast. Everybody really, really treats each other really, really well. You know, Sinequa has really led the, set the tone, you know, with her kindness and her gratitude and the way that she treats everybody. It just really, she, she just has set the tone and everybody has just sort of really stepped up to the plate in terms of, you know, just taking care of each other because it's not always easy work, even though it's fun and, and everyone feels very lucky. It's, it's, it's challenging and long days, but everyone is just, just really, really just amazing, you know? And, and I think one of the sad things about, you know, for everybody and, and for us this year is that, you know, we don't get to hang out with each other this year because of COVID. It's it's a real it's a real loss not to kind of get to spend the weekend with all these people. So, you know, everybody sort of like everybody else in the whole world is is looking forward to that being finished. And I and I imagine the other drawback of COVID, I mean, there's a lot of drawbacks of COVID. I mean, I don't want to say just the other one as if, you know, four hundred thousand people haven't died. But I I imagine one of the other drawbacks of COVID for you specifically is that you have not had a chance, I, I imagine, to enjoy the convention scene while you've been written. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely been closed down. I don't, you know, I'm really, really hoping that stuff will pick back up and that I'll be able to do conventions when they when they return because that would be so much fun. And, and I'm just trying to be patient until then because it's definitely something that I would really, really want to do and I just think would be so much fun. Are are you plan or have you planned or are you doing any of the virtual conventions that are around like GalaxyCon and those types? Nothing at the moment yet, but hopefully something will pop up for me in the future. Well, I really hope if you when convention season does finally start again, you need to come to the Northeast, Rhode Island Comic Con, Terrific Con, Boston Comic Con. You need to come in in that direction. Listen, if if they will, if anyone will have me, I will be there. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'll, I'll, then I'll have to start another hashtag. Hashtag put Noah into the convention. <laughs> Fantastic! I, it really rolls off the tongue. It, it's, it totally does. I, I'm I'm obviously not um, a promoter. <laughs> so, just I guess last question: What future projects are you working on? You know, there's not a lot of acting stuff, but you know, Anthony and I are trying to get together a possible like charity live stream of Dungeons and Dragons with the with the Disco Crew. So maybe just keep an eye out for that in the future. I think that could be a lot of fun. Well, I definitely look forward to it, and I want to thank you a lot for talking with me. You are a lot of fun, and I really appreciate it. Sure thing. You know, thanks for having me, and and it's been awesome. Thank you so much. And we're back. That's right. We are back. Back in the saddle again. Well, <laughs> I hope you guys really, really enjoyed that as much as we did making it for you. And if you like what you heard and you want to hear more, you got to go check out spoilerverse.com because at spoilerverse.com, we have a plethora. Plethora is such a, it's such a snobbish word. <laughs> I like it though. <laughs> It's, it's a good word. <laughs> we have an obscene amount of oh, interviews obscene. with amazing directors and artists of all walks of life and editors and writers. And, oh, my God, are you a lover of comic books like we are? And then there's so many, so many amazing people from the comic book world over at Spoilerverse.com. And I highly implore you to go there and check it out. Yeah, and while you're there, you can check out all the other podcasts on our network, like Bridges and Geekdoms and Funny Book Forensics and Haphazard Adventures and Nerds and the Crypt and so many more. Misery Point Radio. episodes all the time. Misery Point Radio has got a ton of great stuff out there. Go check all of them out. And 
Check out all of the reviews and previews and articles we have going up every single day for you, every day on Swillivers.com for you to check out, to read, and to love, and to like, and to comment. We have a store link. If you want to help support the site, you can do it two ways. One, go to our Patreon, which is just patreon.com slash country, or go to our store link in the middle of the site there and get a t-shirt, a face mask, a hoodie, something. Look fly as hell and help support the site when you do that because we get a dollar or two. And, you know, maybe you want to talk to us. If you do, you can do it obviously on all the socials. But if you go to scpod.us slash discord, you can join our public discord server and come chat with us all day long. I couldn't say it better myself, dude. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. You just mouthed out a ton of information at once. And really, <laughs> I hope you guys enjoy what you're hearing because we're, we're working our butts off to bring it to you. We are. We are. I guess there's only one left thing. One left thing? Yeah. I'm going to go <laughs> with it. There's only one left thing left to do. What's that? In an oceans of podcasts, we are Cthulhu. As Cthulhu compels you to do. Open the mind. And... Even more.